Good morning everyone and welcome to our worship at Hillhead. Our worship this morning will be led by Brian on the theme of the gospel according to Rabbi and uh, it seems like he's got a huge cast of readers this morning so uh, the, the service will be led by half the congregation which is excellent. Uh, our midweek conversation group on Zoom um, will continue on Tuesday at 7 when we will continue our conversations on the theme of time. Coffee Club meets as usual at 10.30 on Wednesday at Esquire House. Also on Wednesday, the managers and Graham, our interim moderator, are meeting for the first time uh, in 2024. We've left it as late as possible in January to have our January meeting. Um, and as always, we would appreciate your prayers for this meeting and for the managers. Next week, we will meet together as usual in the hotel and on Zoom when we will celebrate communion together and Graham Meeklejohn will lead our worship. These are all our notices. Good morning. Um, Burns Day, as we all know, was on Thursday. I don't know, did, did anyone go to anything this, this year? No. Um, I, I must admit the streets seemed a wee bit uh, more empty this year. Um, I don't know why. Anyway, Burns Day was on Thursday, and with this in mind, in, back in November, um, uh, when the current morning services were being planned, I offered, uh, perhaps once again, very rashly, uh, to shape a service on Robert Burns and Faith. So this is it, the Gospel according to Rabbi. I'm not a Burns expert. I'm relying, uh, full disclosure here, <clears throat> on a lot of research which Anne and Wendy did a decade ago about uh, this uh, for use in a completely different forum. So these are personal reflections. Right now, can I say thank you to all who have agreed to be readers this morning, um, including uh, Alistair, who's not with us here in the hotel because he's not so well this morning, but he's bravely doing it online, uh, which is one of the advantages, of course, of Zoom. So thank you to all of you in advance. It may seem strange to some I'm not saying empty here, but it may seem strange to some that we should choose Robert Burns as a theme for worship. After all, he's traditionally seen as anti-Christian by many in the church, and he's still quoted by many folk as ammunition against Christianity. <clears throat> but Burns' criticism comes of the church comes from within the church. Uh, the inspiration for Ode to a Louse came from an incident he observed in church. He participated in, he writes about, the Holy Fair, the old Scottish communion season at which everybody in the area came together to hear a whole brace of local preachers and to receive communion. It's, from his descriptions of it, it sounds like almost like an ecclesiastical Glastonbury or transmit. The truth is that Burns struggled with and engaged with the Bible all his life, in his poems, his letters, and in live debate. We may recognise in him a fellow pilgrim. Can I invite you to join in our opening responses, following which we'll stand, if we can, to sing our first hymn. We come with open hearts to listen for the voice of God. Singing through our voice. Singing through our songs. Calling through our scriptures. Breathing into our silences. 
challenging us to listen, to reflect, to be and to be. So we pray. In a short silence, can I invite you to read again from your order of service the words that we have just sung together, all four verses. In prayer, we bring our skills our insights and our creativity. We seek integrity. We want to strive for the best. When we miss the mark, the love of God surrounds us with forgiveness and gently encourages us to try again.
And in that spirit, we say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, Um, our reflections this morning uh, on the poetry and letters of Robert Burns is divided into four parts, as you will see from your order of service. For part one, we're combining part one this morning with all together. So um, we're starting with a very brief quiz, which is quite straightforward. Um, and I hope it's very simple. I'm trying to keep away from that speaker over there, Paul. Is that OK? Um, it's quite simple. I think you can still see me online from the other camera. Um, yeah, there we are. Nope, not quite. Oh, strange. Uh, there we are. That's great. Uh, so if any of you online want to answer a quiz question, uh, try and catch my eye. I will keep trying looking at the, at the screen. Oh, thanks, Paul. Making a mess here. Anyway, listen, th th these are pretty simple. There's one in here that I found very hard, uh, and, and we'll just see how stupid I was. Maybe everybody else knows it. Uh, but this is for everybody. Right, where in Scotland was Robert Burns born? Was he born... It's all multiple choice, so it's not too bad. <laughs> Arbroath, Aviemore, or Alloway? Jenny, uh, put your mic on. Yeah, Alloway. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, I think everybody knew that, but people are just too... But, you know, try, try and uh, put your hands up. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. Uh, what delicacy did Burns refer to as the great chieftain of the pudding race? Was it uh, a black pudding? Maybe a Stornoway black pudding? Uh, was it a haggis or was it a white pudding? Haggis. Haggis. I think we're all agreed on that. Um, what was Robert Burns' paid job, aside from being a farmer and a poet? Was he a postman, a policeman, or an exciseman? Paul, Paul says an exciseman. Correct. Which, of course, was a tax collector, uh, customs and excise officer. Um, that was before any forms of income tax. It was only about business stuff. Um, a Burns supper traditionally starts with a soup course, the choice being cullen skink, which is a thick Scottish soup made from which fish? Cod, trout or haddock? Haddock. 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 We're all with haddock, are we? Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely, with potatoes and onions. <clears throat> Which flower was mentioned in Burns' most famous love lament? I told you they're quite easy. <laughs> was it a tulip? Uh, was it a thistle? Or was it a, a rose? A red rose? A rose, a red, red rose. We're all agreed with that. Um, Burns was the very first person to appear on which famous soft drink brand? Yes, this is the one. <laughs> Um, Pepsi, Iron Brew, or Coca-Cola? Anita says Iron Brew. What do you think? Iron 
Andrew, uh, MD Online? No. Coca-Cola. Uh, he was the first person to appear on a commemorative Coca-Cola bottle. See, I, t I told you, that, that, that's a difficult one. Um, in, a, in his poem, To a Louse, which we've already referred to in my introduction, where was the louse crawling? Over a lady's jacket, over a lady's bonnet, over a lady's dress. Bonnet. We're agreeing on bonnet. Yes, yes, that's correct. What age was Burns when he wrote his very first poem? Was he 15, 16 or 17? 15. 15? It's 15. Any online? No? Okay. You think 15? Anybody else? 15? 15's correct. And he wrote it to his first love, Nellie Blair. Uh, okay, where was the first official Burns Supper held? And when? Was it, well, we'll go for where first. Was it in Alloway? Was it in Edinburgh? Or was it in Greenock? Greenock. Okay. Edinburgh, Greenock. Any, any offers online? Alistair? What are you saying? Edinburgh, I think. Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Okay, I think we're two for Edinburgh and one for Greenock. Any, any more votes, please? It was in Greenock on the 29th, 29th of January, 1801, so very, just a very few years after he died. Um, it was uh, held by the Greenock Burns Club and Ayrshire Society, which still runs to this very day. And, of course, within a few years, it was changed from the 29th to the 25th. To, to commemorate uh, his birthday. Uh, thank you very much. Well, okay. As many of us already know, um, Burns knew and loved uh, the Bible. Not only are his letters and poems peppered with biblical quotations and analogies, he also paraphrased or versified some of the Psalms from the Hebrew Bible, uh, like this version of Psalm 90, which is read to us by Wendy. O thou, the first, the greatest friend of all the human race, whose strong right hand has ever been their stay and dwelling place. Before the mountains heaved their heads beneath thy forming and before this ponderous globe itself arose at thy command. That power which raised and still upholds this universal frame from countless unbeginning time was ever still the same. Those mighty periods of years which seems to us so vast, appear no more before thy sight than yesterday that's past. Thou givest the word, thy creature man is to existence brought. Again thou sayest, ye sons of men, return ye unto naught. 
Thou layest them with all their cares in everlasting sleep. As with a flood, thou takest them off with overwhelming sweep. They flourish like the morning flower in beauty's pride arrayed. But long ere night, cut down it lies, all withered and decayed. Thanks, Wendy. It may not be surprising that Burns was attracted to Psalm 90. Its sense of the brevity of life, he died young at only 37, and the general hardness of life. He was born a poor tenant farmer in Ayrshire, the eldest of seven children. By the age of 15, he was the principal labourer on his father's farm when he wrote his first poem. At the age of 22, he moved to Irvine to work as a flax dresser, but he became very ill. And then his house caught fire and he lost all his possessions. He returned to farming, but then worked as an excise officer, a taxman. Throughout his whole life, ill health caused financial difficulties and great anxiety. He died of rheumatic fever on 25th July, 1796. His funeral, four days later, took place while his widow was giving birth to their ninth child. And yet, despite everything, Burns still believed in a benevolent God. In his paraphrase of Psalm 1, he writes, The man in life, wherever placed, hath happiness in store, who walks not in the wicked's way, nor learns their guilty lore. I don't know how many of you have ever sung one of Burns' paraphrases in church. Probably very few, if anyone. But let's do that this morning. Uh, Neil is going to accompany us as we sing Burns' paraphrase of the first psalm to the tune Martyrdom Fenwick.
Of course, the other reason that we may not sing Burns' paraphrases or hear his poems in church is that his personal life uh, has always been considered pretty dodgy. <laughs> uh, and it's true that only nine of his 12 children were with his wife, Jean Armour. But he accepted responsibility for all his actions and he also accepted the discipline of the church. Burns appeared before the Kirk session for the first time when Jean Armour was six months pregnant and was not prepared to marry him. Alistair reads an extract from a letter to John Redmond in which Burns talks about his position. Must deal, 9th July, 1786. I have waited on armour since our return home, not from the least view of reconciliation, but merely to ask for our health. And to you, I will confess it from a fully tank fondness, burial placed indeed. The mother forbade me the house, nor did Jean show that penitence that might have been expected. However, the priest, I'm informed, will give me a certificate as a single man if I comply with the rules of the church, which for that very reason I intend to do. I'm going to put on sackcloth and ashes this day. I'm indulged so far as to appear in my own seat. Pichave peter misery may the Lord stand with the righteous. Amen. Amen. Two years later, Burns was back before the Kirk session, asking for his irregular marriage to Jean to be recognised. The session again rebuked them, but then also went ahead and confirmed that their marriage was okay in the eyes of the church. But more importantly, he accepted personal responsibility for his actions. He ensured the well-being of all his children, not just those that he'd had with Jean Armour. And he felt that he must answer to a higher power for his actions too. Alistair reads an extract, this time from a letter he sent to a Mrs Dunlop. 21st June 1789. That there is an incomprehensible great being to whom I owe my existence, and that he must be intimately acquainted with the operations and progress of internal machinery and consequent outward deportment of this creature which he has made. These are, I think, self-evident prepositions, that there is a real and eternal distinction between virtue and vice, and consequently that I am an accountable creature. So given all of that, how did Burns get the reputation of being anti-Christian? Well, we all know that he wrote some of the most scathing critiques of the church ever written. But he reserved this biting criticism not for the Christian faith, nor for the church per se, but for a certain self-righteous, hypocritical, religious individuals, and in particular, ultra-Calvinists, who seemed to be able to contemplate the damnation of their sisters and brothers with some ease or even some glee. It's to these folk that Burns is talking in his poem, The Address to the Unco Good, or Bridgesley Righteous. He prefaces the poem with his own translation of the 16th verse of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In the King James Version, it reads, Be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. 
Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? A contemporary English version says simply, don't destroy yourself by being too good or acting too smart. Burns' version of this verse is more colourful. My son, these maxims make a rule and lump them all together. The rigid righteous is a fool, the rigid wise another. The cleanest corn the air was dicked may hasten piles of chaffin. So ne'er a fellow creature slight for random fits of daffin. Anita reads an extract from the address to the Uncle Good. O ye who are so good yourself, so pious and so holy, you've not to do but mark and tell your neighbour's faults and folly, whose life is like a wheel gone mill, supplied with store of water, the heap it happers ebbing still, and still the clap plays clatter. Hear me, ye venerable core, as counsel for poor mortals, that frequent pass doos wisdom's door for glacit folly's portals. I, for their thoughtless, careless sakes, would here propone defences, their dauncy tricks, their black mistakes, their failings and mischances. Ye see your state with theirs compared, and shudder at the nifter. What cast a moment's fair regard, what makes the mighty differ? Discount what scant occasion gave, that purity you pride in, and what's after mere than a the love, your better art o' hiding. Ye high, exalted, virtuous dames, tied up in godly laces, before ye gee poor frailty names, suppose a change of cases. A dear-loved lad, convenience snug, a treacherous inclination. But let me whisper in your lug, your albin's nay temptation. Then gently scan your brother man, still gentler still, sister woman. Though they may gang a kennin rang, to step aside is human. One point must still be greatly dark, then moving why they do it. And just as lamely can ye mark how far perhaps they rue it. Who made the heart, tis he alone, decidedly can try us. He knows each chord its various tone, each spring its various bias. Then at the balance let's be mute, ye never can adjust it. What's done we partly may compute, but no not what's resisted. And in that final verse, Burns restates the point that Jesus made. Only God <clears throat> can judge. Among the uncle good personally known to Burns was uh, someone called Willie Fisher, an elder in Mochlin Kirk. Willie had taken a dislike to Gavin Hamilton, a landlord and an almoner, that's a treasurer of the Kirk, Hamilton was suspected of financial impropriety when inconsistencies in the accounts were discovered. It may be, and this was Hamilton's defence, that the deficit was the result of Hamilton's kindly and Christian acts of forgiving the debts of those who were unable to pay their tax to the Kirk. 
Fisher spied on Hamilton and added further charges. Travelling on the Sabbath, not reading the Bible on a Sunday, digging the garden on a Sabbath. The case went to court. Hamilton won the case. The Kirk appealed twice and lost twice. The changing moral climate of the day, as much as the evidence presented by Hamilton's lawyer, Robert Aiken, played a part. The case was a talking point throughout Scotland. And Burns was moved to write the poem, Holy Willie's Prayer, an extract from which Katrina now reads. O thou who in the heavens does dwell, who as it pleases best thyself, Sends ain to heaven and ten to hell, all for thy glory, and know for ony good or ill they've done afore thee. Lord, mind Gavin Hamilton's deserts, he drinks and swears and plays at kerts, yet has say money taken arts, we great and small, frae God's ain priest the people's hearts he steals awa. Lord, hear my earnest cry and prayer against that presbytery of air. Thy strong right hand, Lord, make it bear upon thy heads, their heads. Uh, Lord, visit them and dinna spare for their misdeeds. O Lord, my God, that glib-tongued aching, my vera heart and flesh are quaking, to think how we stood sweating, shaking and pissed with dread, while he with hanging lip and snaking held up his head. Lord, in thy day of vengeance try him, Lord, visit them what did employ him, and pass not in thy mercy by him, nor hear their prayer, but for thy people's sake destroy him and dinna spare. But Lord, remember me and mine, we mercies temporal and divine, that I for grace and gear may shine, excelled by name, and all the glory shall be thine. Amen, amen. Um, you don't have to look too hard to see the parallel with Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, do you? Um, we were just talking before the service and we, we were sort of concluding that uh, a satirical poem like that would easily get into the columns of Private Eye today. But we mustn't under underestimate the risk that Burns was taking in attacking the prevailing orthodoxy of the time. Although Holy Willie's Prayer was written in 1785, it was first printed and published anonymously in 1799, three years after he died. It did circulate privately, and some of the poem's most ardent fans were ministers who shared Burns' distaste for the loveless theology of double predestination, that God had predestined each person to heaven or hell before they were born. When one of these ministers, the Reverend John McMath, wrote to Burns requesting a copy of Holy Willie's Prayer, Burns was careful to enclose a verse letter uh, in, in, when he sent uh, as a covering letter with the copy. This is an extract from it. But I get mad at their grimaces. They're sighing, they're canting, they're grace-browned faces. They're three-mile prayers and half-mile graces. They're raxing conscience, whose greed, revenge and pride disgraces were no their nonsense. 
God knows I'm no the thing I should be, nor am I even the thing I could be. But 20 times I'd rather be an atheist clean than under gospel colours hid be just for a screen. And anxious to write, to emphasise that he's writing in the defence of true religion, he goes on, All hail religion made divine, pardon amuse, say mean as mine, who in a rough imperfect line thus doors to name thee, to stigmatise false friends of thine, can ne'er defame thee. It's extreme stuff. And there's no avoiding Burns' language. He didn't shy away from naming people, not just Holy Willie, but the minister of the Presbyteries of Air, as well as other individuals. He reserves some of his most scathing lines for a Mrs. Oswald. In the extract from this poem, Ode Sacred to Mrs. Oswald of Auchincroof, what a fabulous title, which Wendy is going to read, he asks the devil to take a closer look at the recently deceased rich widow who has just arrived in hell. View the withered beldam's face. Can thy keen inspection trace aught of humanity's sweet melting grace? Not that I, the room o'erflows, pity's flood there never rose. See these hands ne'er stretched to save, hands that took but never gave. Keeper of mammon's iron chest, lo, there she goes, unpitied and unblessed. She goes, but not to realms of everlasting rest. And are they of no more avail ten thousand glittering pounds a year? In other worlds can mammon fail, omnipotent as he is here. O oh, bitter mockery of the pompous beer, while down the wretched vital part is driven, the cave-lodged beggar with a conscience clear, expires in rags, unknown, and goes to heaven. And there it is, the story of Dives and Lazarus as told by Jesus. Burns' language may be excoriating, but no more so than Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees. Will reads from Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. As you'll have noticed, um, <clears throat> our hymns this morning have been chosen quite often by modern hymn writers um, to reflect the continuing themes that we're hearing from Burns and from the Bible. And so we stand, if we can, to sing Heaven Shall Not Wait.
Burns also asserted the equal importance of each human life and the priesthood of all believers. In the Cotter Saturday night, he describes the scene of a poor rural family gathered on uh, one, the one night of the week that they could spend together, Saturday night. The father from the field, the older children from the various farms around about where they were employed as labourers or farm servants, the mother from the daily grind of keeping everything going. Some find it sentimental, but it's thought to be based on Burns' memories of his own childhood. Sheila reads some verses from the Cotter's Saturday Night. The cheerful supper done, with serious face, they, round the ingle, form a circle wide. The sire turns o'er with patriarchal grace, the big haw Bible, ends his father's pride. His bonnet reverently is laid aside, his lyart haffets wearing thin and bare. Those strains that once did sweet in Zion glide, he wails a portion with judicious care. And let us worship God, he says with solemn air. They chant their artless notes in simple guise. They tune their hearts by far the noblest aim. Perhaps Dundee's wild warbling measures rise, or plaintive martyrs worthy of the name, or noble Elgin beats the heavenward flame. The sweetest far of Scotia's holy lays, compared with these, Italian trills are tame. The tickled ears no heartfelt raptures raise, Nay, unison, he they, with our Creator's praise. The priest-like father reads the sacred page. How Abram was the friend of God on high, or Moses bade eternal warfare wage with Amalek's ungracious progeny, or how the royal bard did groaning lie beneath the stroke of heaven's avenging ire. Or Job's pathetic plaint and wailing cry. Or rapt Isaiah's wild seraphic fire. Or other holy seers that tune the sacred lyre. <clears throat> Perhaps the Christian volume is the theme. How guiltless blood for guilty man was shed. How he who bore in heaven the second name had not on earth whereon to lay his head. How his first followers and servants sped. The precepts sage they wrote to many a land. How he who lone in Patmos banished saw in the sun a mighty angel stand and heard great Babylon's doom pronounced by heaven's command. Then, kneeling down to heaven's eternal king, the saint, the father, and the husband prays, hope springs exulting on triumphant wing, that thus they all shall meet in future days there, 
ever bask in uncreated rays, no more to sigh or shed the bitter tear, together hymning their creator's praise. In such society, yet still more dear, while circling time moves round in an eternal sphere. Compared with this, how poor religion's pride in all the pomp of method and of art, when men display to congregations wide devotions every grace except the heart. The power incensed, the pageant will desert, the pompous strain, the sacerdotal stole, but haply in some cottage far apart may hear, well pleased, the language of the soul, and in his book of life, the inmates poor enroll. If this illustration from the Cotter Saturday night has anything to say to us, <clears throat> it's that each of us is a minister and a pastor. Burns reminds us that the layperson is not a nobody. She or he is a somebody. Faith and living are one and the same thing. The cotter, he insists, like John Knox before him and George MacLeod after him, is no less than a minister. She or he is to be a minister, a pastor, as much as anyone else. But, you know, underlying all of this is an even simpler assertion that all human beings are equal in the sight of God. Anita reads an extract from A Man's A Man for All That. Is there for honest poverty that hangs his head and all that? The coward slave we pass him by, we dare, dare be poor for all that. For all that and all that, our toils obscure and all that. The rank is but the guinea's stamp, the man's the gowd for all that. What though unhamely fair we dine, wear hooden grey and all that. Gie fools their silks and knaves their wine, a man's a man for all that. For all that and all that, their tinsel show and all that. The honest man o'er earth sae poor is king o' men for all that. Then let us pray that come it may, as come it will for all that, that sense and worth o'er all the earth shall bear the gree and all that. For all that and all that, it's coming yet for all that, that man to man the world o'er shall brothers be for all that. And we sing again. <clears throat>
So how shall we sum up Burns' theology? What, for him, was true religion? Alistair reads an extract from a letter of 1788 to a Mrs McElhose, where he sets out his beliefs. I will lay before you the outlines of my belief. He who is our author and preserver and will one day be our judge must be not for his sake in the way of duty, but from the native impulse of our hearts, the object of our reverential awe and grateful adoration. He is almighty and all-bounteous. We are weak and dependent, hence prayer and every other sort of devotion. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Consequently, it must be in everyone's power to embrace his offer of everlasting life. Otherwise, he could not, in justice, condemn those who did not. A mind pervaded, actuated and governed by purity, truth and charity, though it does not merit heaven, yet is an absolute necessary prerequisite, without which heaven can neither be obtained nor enjoyed. And by divine promise, such a mind shall never fail of attaining everlasting life. 
Hence the impure, the deceiving, and the uncharitable extrude themselves from eternal bliss by their unfitness for enjoying it. The Supreme Being has put the immediate administration of this for wise and good ends known to himself into the hands of Jesus Christ, whose relation to him we cannot comprehend, but whose relation to us is a guide and saviour, and who, except for our own obstinacy and misconduct, will bring us all through various ways and by various means to bliss at last. And in his epistle to a young friend, he offers advice on how to live. The pharaoh hells a hangman's whip to hod the wretch in order, but where ye feel your honour grip, let that I be your border. Its slightest touches, instant pause, debar and side pretenses, and resolutely keep its laws, uncaring consequences. There it is in a verse from Burns, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We mustn't pretend that Burns had everything sorted. Burns was a person of his time, as we all are. If he was alive today, he might take different views on lots of things, just as we have progressed in thinking and theology and faith over centuries as Christian communities. Which of us ever does have everything sorted? We know that he remained a sceptic about many aspects of the Christian faith, but he hankered for a life after death. In the end, he seems to have found peace. Alistair reads from another letter that he wrote to Mrs Dunlop near the end of his life. Anna Walter, 22nd August, 1792. I hope and believe that there is a state of existence beyond the grave where the worthy of this life will renew their former intimacies with an endeared addition that we meet to part no more. Still the damned dogmas of reasoning philosophy throw, us, throw in their doubts. But upon the whole, I believe, or rather, I have a kind of conviction, though not absolute certainty, of the world beyond the grave. And in a letter to Mr Burgess, we find these lines. December 27th, 1781. Honoured sir, I'm quite transported at the thought that ere long, perhaps very soon, I shall bid an eternal adieu to all the pains and uneasiness and disquietudes of this weary life. For I assure you, I am heartily tired of it. And if I do not very much deceive myself, I could consequently and gladly resign it. It is for this reason I am more pleased with the 15th, 16th and 17th verses of the 7th chapter of Revelation than any 10 times many verses in the whole Bible and would not exchange the noble enthusiasm with which they inspire me for all, all that this world has to offer. And Grace now reads these verses from the book of Revelation. These are the ones who have gone through the great suffering. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and have made them white. And so they stand before the throne of God 
and worship him in his temple day and night. The one who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. They will never hunger or thirst again, and they won't be troubled by the sun or any scorching heat. The lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to streams of life-giving water, and God will wipe all tears from their eyes. We come together in our prayers for others and our prayers for each other. Let us pray. Creator God, you created the universe and you made the whole of creation. You made each one of us in your image and to be custodians of your creation. Forgive us when we have failed to do so. Creator God, you made us all in your image. You have moved men and women throughout the ages to create songs, poems, words and music, to bring joy to your creation and to proclaim your word to all peoples throughout the generations. Creator God, you have made us all in your image to carry on your creative work, to bring order to ideas, to speak out against injustice, to name what is true. Forgive us when we do not live out your words. Forgive us when we use words carelessly, when we use words to hurt, to cause offence or to incite hatred. Creator God, we pray for all for whom life is a daily struggle with oppression, homelessness, rejection and need, often surrounded by the plenty of others. Help us to shape a fairer world. And this week from our Baptist Missionary Society prayer guide, we remember the country of Chad, with its unstable government, widespread poverty, lack of access to health care, poor education and low income. We pray for BMS workers who strive to promote justice and to spread your word in Chad. <clears throat> Creator God, we remember with thanks all who have gone before us in the faith of Christ. Built our sanctuaries, gathered our songs, 
and taught us to know you. And from our Baptist Union of Scotland prayer calendar, we pray this week for the Reverend Nick Blair, Bowness Baptist Church, Bowtree Hill Baptist Church, and Bridge of Don Baptist Church. And we pray for each other in our own faith community. Keep us one with all your saints in faith and in service. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. After our closing hymn, we will um, hear a sending prayer and then we'll sing together uh, the sending blessing that's on your order of service. This last hymn, like a lot of hymns we sing here, is one in which it really repays uh, benefits by thinking very clearly and closely about the words we're singing. Uh, and, and this one by uh, John Bell and Graham Mall is one of these hymns. So as we sing together, I invite you to immerse yourselves in the words of each verse.
it struck me that that could be a prayer song uh, for this year in which more than half the world have elections. May we be people of the gospel, choosing to help bring justice, peace, freedom and life in all its fullness. And may God be in our every action, Jesus in every pausing to listen, and the Spirit be in every moment of choosing. Amen.